Hello. I'd like to welcome you to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the London School of Economics. Um, today we're very lucky to have with us uh, Vincent Decoux, who is, amongst other things, visiting professor of French literature at the University of Chicago. And today he's going to be speaking to us about questions of identity. And Alan Montefiore is going to be responding to him. Alan is um, Emeritus Fellow at Balliol College, Oxford, and he's also the President of the Forum for European Philosophy. So I think Vincent will speak first, Alan will give a response, and then we'll have some time for questions at the end. Well, thank you. Uh, actually, I am a, only an occasional visiting professor sometimes at Chicago. My, my uh, job is at, in Paris. And it's philosophy, not uh, French literature. Um, well, uh, I have uh, published a book uh, which is called in French Les Embarras de l'Identité. And this book will be, uh, has been translated in English and will be published uh, next year at some point. And it seems that the title will be Puzzling Identity. So I'm going to say some uh, few things about uh, the puzzlements that are uh, occasioned by uh, identity. So this is how I would describe uh, the argument of the book. Let's say we see people doing something such as uh, speaking together or uh, going to church. And suppose that they are not just speaking, but they are speaking the same language or they are going to the same church. Now, what do we mean by that? Do we, how, how do we understand speaking the same language or going to the same church? And how do we know that's, uh, uh, that, that uh, this is what they are doing? Well, this would be a matter of uh, ascertaining identity in a logical sense, a logical sense which uh, amounts to referring to one and the same thing namely a language, a, a church, or whatever. Now, let's suppose these people we observe are deeply attached to their language or to their uh, rituals. Uh, suppose that uh, if you ask these people to change their ways, for instance, for reasons of economy or convenience, well, they would protest that you are asking them to stop being who they are. They could say, uh, doing so uh, is part of our identity. So it, it, we, we are not going to change it uh, in any way. Uh, and then we would speaking of identity, but of identity in a different sense, a new psychological sense, meaning that people stick to their uh, ways uh, because they define themselves by these ways. So obviously these two meanings of the word identity are different. Taking the word in the first of uh, the two meanings, we are exercising a concept of identity each time we make a definite reference to something, because referring to something is referring to one object and the same object. So we could speak here of a concept of referential identity. Now, in the second meaning of the word identity, we are considering the reasons people would give for what they are doing, they say they uh, do that because it's required by 
what or rather who they are. Identity, when it is so understood, is no longer a matter of being the same item already referred to in a discourse. It is a matter of being oneself and being aware of it. Our notion of uh, identity now is psychological rather than logical. Therefore, I will speak of a psychological identity. <coughs> well, not just a psychological <coughs> identity, because <coughs> what kind of psychology do we bring into the picture with that new sense? I would say it's uh, a moral psychology uh, because it means a justification for uh, what uh, I do and the, the psychology I have in mind then is not a cognitive psychology, it's not a matter of knowing something, it's a matter of moral psychology because it, it has to do with the moral feelings, the moral sentiments such as self-esteem, pride, shame, humiliation, and more generally, amour propre. Uh, these feelings are moral in the sense that they are, uh, uh, they, they deserve uh, praise or blame according to uh, what they are. So my, uh, my uh, aim is to explain how we can move conceptually from one meaning to the other, from the logical meaning to the psychological meaning, uh, since uh, it is, uh, possible to show that uh, you cannot dispense of uh, the logical meaning when you are using the psychological meaning. So I uh, would like to make three points. Uh, one point about the word identity, uh, then one point about personal identity, and maybe some words about uh, collective identity. So first point will be about uh, language. Uh, we know how to use the language of identity when our intention is to identify the objects we are referring to. For instance, somebody is uh, uh, ringing the bell, is calling at the door, and we ask who is calling. This is a question about identity in the logical sense. Now, do we know how to switch from that logical referential uh, meaning to the new psychological use? The use we find in such uh, uh, expressions have uh, having an identity, searching for one's identity, uh, finding oneself with a weak identity, uh, claiming uh, uh, something as a part of one's identity, etc. To Says such things uh, uh, presupposes that we have mastered the, uh, the use of identity with the notion of possession. We, we, we have mastered the construction, the grammatical construction of the word identity with uh, the form of uh, the linguistic forms we need to express ownership, acquisition, loss, privation, etc. And here there are two reasons for puzzlement. First reason, how could one fail to have an identity? It seems quite paradoxical to describe somebody going through an identity crisis, which means that uh, uh, something like having lost uh, one's identity. It's paradoxical since we can say who is a person at present in the state of lacking an identity. 
we are not wondering who is uh, the person. We know uh, who the person is, and we describe this person as uh, undergoing a crisis of identity. So that's the first paradox. And now there is a second paradox, which uh, you find if you uh, look at the literature in social uh, sciences. In social sciences, people uh, speak of our identities, and we are constantly reminded that uh, we should think of one's identity as something complex and dynamic. Uh, so we are told that it takes more than one identity to tell or to express who you are. La like uh, everybody, it is claimed, you have a plurality of identities. And such a statement prompts uh, necessarily us to ask if uh, I have uh, more than one identity, if I have several identities, then what makes all these distinct identities my identity? So the question is, do we master, do we really master such linguistic constructions? Uh, what do I have, do, what do I have when my identity is plural and dynamic? It seems that uh, the trouble with a plural dynamic changing identity is that uh, such an identity is deprived of any identifying power. So the real problem uh, uh, I think we, we should uh, realize about identity is why do we insist in using the word identity while at the same time uh, uh, being uh, very careful about the identifying power of what we call identity. So a few words about uh, plural identity. It is often said that uh, the identity talk, uh, in which we indulge sometimes, should be used with a lot of provisos and qualifications. And it, it's a matter of uh, plurality, since there is a synchronic plurality. Uh, at any time, I have more than one identity. And there is a diachronic identity, since I, I'm supposed to change my identity all the time. Now, uh, maybe to uh, clarify the, the, the situation, let's compare having an identity with something like having an address. And in some way, we, we could uh, decide that uh, instead of speaking of uh, my address, I would speak of my postal identity. Uh, why not my postal identity? I have a postal identity. Well, what would it mean for me to have a plural address? I guess we would take a plural address to be a plurality of addresses. Uh, having more than one address would be to have, for instance, two addresses. But each of these addresses would be a genuine address. For instance, I have an address in Paris and an address in Tokyo, let's say. And at each of these addresses, uh, I am uh, at home. So it's a real address. If uh, you know my, uh, uh, if you know one of the priority of my addresses, you know where you might have a chance to find me. Speaking of uh, uh, my, uh, uh, speaking of where to find me in the plural boils down to saying that there is more than one place where you should look for me if you want to find me. Not that you will find me at all these places where, uh, uh, at the same time, where, where uh, I have an address. 
In uh, having a plural address does not mean that uh, I have been able to overcome the condition of being individuated and having just one body. Uh, having more than one address doesn't mean I have become ubiquitous. So, so a plurality of addresses makes sense because it is a plurality of singular addresses. On the other hand, we are supposed to deny the very possibility of having an identity in the singular. So we are puzzled by the word identity itself because we don't know what use we are supposed to make of a notion of identity if it is not to identify something or somebody. The current language of identity in social sciences requires us to accept that having an identity has nothing to do with the fact of being identifiable, that is to say, individuated, that is to say, having one body. Again, our notion of identity, we are told, should not be static. We should keep in mind that having an identity is not a state of the person. Having an identity of its own is something dynamic, fluid, unstable, in other words, always changing. But what does it take for an identity so understood to be changing? Once again, let's compare to having an address, having a postal identity. I can move from my present address to a new one, and then I can move from this next address to another different one. For example, I can make plans for my next future travel and list all the addresses I will have in the next months. In this respect, we could say I don't have a permanent address to give you, only transitory ones. But each of these addresses would be a plain ordinary one, a fixed location where I would be even if for a limited time. It doesn't mean that the address I have is a moving address. As if I told you that in the next few months, I would be living on a boat. And uh, if I ask you to write me with my boat as my address. But if I told you that, that I, please write me to my boat, then you would ask me about the addresses where the boat would be located. You would ask me about the addresses of my boat, that is to say, the addresses of my address. And we would have to fall back on ordinary addresses. So, it seems to me, the moment I begin asking about the location of my location, or the address of my address, is the very moment I would be entering into the realm of nonsense. But is it not the case that I should be able to ask about the identity of my present identity since I'm supposed to keep on exchanging former identities against new ones? And the very fact we can speak of the same identity and another identity leads us to assume that it makes sense to speak about the identity of an identity and it's not clear what sense it makes. Nobody would claim that a person is an address, so there is no interference between saying who lives at one particular address and saying at, at which particular address somebody is now to be found. Not so with identity. Suppose we go and think that my identity is not something stable and permanent. My identity, like anybody's identity, we say, is always changing. It is always in a process of transformation. Then, if it is so, there will be a history of my identity, exactly like there could be a story of my successive addresses. But what about the history of my identity? Is the history of my identity exactly the same thing as my own history? 
or is it something distinct from my history? It cannot be distinct unless my identity can change without myself being changed in something else. But it has to be distinct since I'm still willing to claim the succession of these distinct identities as being the succession of my identities. So we want both to affirm and to deny that the plurality and the variability of my identities imply my own plurality and variability. But how can one be more than one person? I submit that this is something we don't yet understand. So, the conclusion I draw from uh, these uh, speculations is that there is a conflict between the plurality requirement and the fact of individuation. We don't really master the new psychological use of the word identity as long as we cannot reconcile the plural character of who I am, my self-presentation, the plural character of who I am with the way I am individuated by being one living body. Uh, how much time do I have? Okay. Excuse me, the microphone, the microphone, not Like that? Ah, okay. Like that? Better. Uh, let me skip uh, the Ericsson. Uh, okay, so I say some words about uh, the question who I am, the question who am I, the, the identity in the sense of psychological personal identity. And uh, my uh, point is that. Uh, um, what is important about the new concept of identity is that it is a concept to be used in the first person. Actually, it's not immediately clear why we have the same word identity for uh, two uh, users, the logical and the psychological. And maybe uh, one way to explain it is to go back to the history of the world. Um, a key figure in uh, any historical account of uh, our recent use of identity is the psychoanalyst Eric Erikson, who is the one who coined the expression identity crisis. Erikson, uh, well, Erikson was a, a Ericsson was not Ericsson. Ericsson was uh, when Ericsson emigrated from uh, Germany to from Austria and Germany to uh, the States. He was uh, his name was Eric Hamburger because Hamburger was the name of his stepfather. Uh, his mother never told him who was his father, so he took the he had the, the name Hamburger. But when he became an American citizen, he decided he would be Eric Ericsson. And you see the point 
Eric Axen, Hamburger became his middle name, Eric H. Ericsson. So Ericsson was, uh, was a psychoanalyst. He was analyzed by Anna Freud. Uh, he practiced uh, sometimes uh, in, uh, in Vienna until the, the Nazi came over in Vienna. So then he immigrated and became American. And he invented the, the identity crisis uh, at the end of the 40s. And what did he mean by that? Well, he told, he wrote uh, in uh, uh, several times that he could not define the term. Uh, I quote uh, Ericsson, uh, so far I have tried out the term identity almost deliberately in many different connotations. At one time, it seems to refer to a conscious sense of individual uniqueness. At another time, to an unconscious striving for a continuity of experience. And at a third time, as a solidarity with a group's ideals. The reason for that failure to come up with a definition of psychosocial identity, as he calls it, seems to be that the term was intended to bring together all the dimensions of human life, namely the biological maturation of an organism in a life cycle, then the psychological formation of a personality, and then the social insertion of the individual in his environment. In defense of Ericsson, it might be argued that the lack of a definition for the term is not uh, the sign of Ericsson or others being careless about their intellectual undertaking, but rather the sign that we lack the intellectual tools to spell out the connections between these three dimensions of what it takes for a human being to be oneself. Now, there is an American historian called Philip Gleason who has written a history of uh, the word identity. Gleason tells us that at the end of the uh, 70s, he was asked to contribute to the Harvard history of American ethnic groups with a discussion of American identity. And Gleason remembers having been somehow baffled by the topic given, he says, the elusive, not to say mystifying, quality of the term identity. Being an historian, his first move was to try to make sense of the term identity by telling the story of the world. He published in uh, 1983, the result of his historical inquiry in an essay entitled Identifying Identity. His research in the history of the world is particularly interesting since Gleason is a professor of modern American history dealing with such topics as immigration, ethnicity, and the like. At first, he says, questions about identity in America were questions about America as a land of immigration and as a melting pot. And in this respect, it is not fortuitous that the notion of identity was devised in America by Ericsson, an immigrant from Germany. So, according to uh, Gleason, the basic historical fact is that the word identity became prominent in the American social sciences of the 50s. Gleason quotes uh, several books published at that time dealing with the, the issue of immigration and diversity. According to some scholars at that time, 
There was a time before World War II when Americans used to define themselves in ethnic terms, such as uh, having an Italian background or a Polish background, things like that. But in the 50s, it, it was argued in these books, people would answer the question, who am I, and locate themselves in society by religious identification. So this is a change in, at that time. In other words, the recent term identity made it possible for historians to ask the kind of questions they want to ask, that is to say, historical questions, about what people say about themselves in the first person. At one time, people gave one sort of answer to the question, who am I? And at another time, they gave another sort of answer. And there are two striking elements in Gleason's uh, observations. First, the question, who am I? looks very personal and even individualistic, but the answer we expect has to be given in terms of locating oneself in society, finding one's location among various possible identifications within a community. Or better, within the plurality of communities I take myself to belong to. And second element, the question is framed in the singular first person but it is clearly meant as a question in the first person plural. Who am I makes sense as a way of asking who are we? Or better, with whom am I prepared to form a we? Now, another point, Gleason rightly points out that Erving Goffman, in his book Stigma in uh, 1963, began to speak about identities at places where he used till that time, till that book, to say self. So the word identity comes where you would have found self. And this is something which has been, uh, has, uh, has had a consequence, for instance, in, in German, uh, there was a translation of George Herbert Mead's book, uh, uh, what is that? Uh, so, uh, society, mind, self, I think. So, I don't remember the orders. Society, mind, self, or mind, society, okay. Mind, society, self. Okay. The self, instead of being translated by selbst, has been translated by identity. So a lot of uh, what uh, Mead says in the book becomes inintelligible because uh, it made sense with selbst or self, but not with identity. Which means that this, this move by government uh, uh, had an effect. Uh, it means that sociologists uh, known as interactionists began describing people as individuals choosing their identities by playing with more or less conviction the social roles that were assigned to them by the social circumstances. Now, there is a great opposition between an Ericksonian identity and a Goffmanian identity. Each of us will have to play many social roles in his and her life and has better to be prepared for this succession of interactions. Being a parent is not the same as being a professional or an artist and one has to be ready to manage with the potential conflicts and complications arising from this diversity of roles. Again, being a good parent is one thing, being a good professional is another thing. One can succeed in one department but not in the other. 
But if an identity of mine is just a social role I consider significant, then the plurality of identities is the normal condition of man. But on Ericsson's view, the pathology of identity, that is to say the identity crisis, was precisely the inability to come out with one single well-formed representation of oneself. At this point, uh, Gleason observes in his article, it becomes very difficult to know what we are talking about when we speak of identity. According to the Ericksonian school, he says, identity is a deep, internal, and permanent character. According to the Goffmanian school, identity is shallow, external, and evanescent. So Gleason concludes in uh, 1983, by a caveat to his fellow Eastern, beware of the word identity when you find it in the literature because you cannot be sure that it means anything definite. But that was in 1983 and the word is still with us. So one, uh, I will finish by that point, one could uh, wonder why the word was so successful. And here is my uh, hypothesis. Uh, the reason why the language of identity has been successful since the 50s and keeps being successful is that it has opened a way out of uh, our individualistic conceptions within the intellectual and affective world of individualism itself. The word identity offers a way to reassert the primacy of the human individual over all sorts of other concerns while giving to uh, individuals a chance to claim back the non-individualistic part of their lives and their experiences. On the one hand, the primacy of the individual as a value over other values is maintained, and this is uh, shown by the fact that we ask people to stand for themselves and to speak in the first person. People will have to define by themselves who they are, both in the personal sense, who I am, and in the collective sense, who we are. But on the other hand, an individual is permitted to claim as a part of himself, of herself, what is in fact his or her being himself or herself part of a larger whole. As soon as I say that being member of a, a community is part and parcel of my being myself, I can claim back my social being as a dimension of my personal being. Thanks to the language of identity, the values of individualism have ceased to be inimical to an essential part of the human condition. Is, is this all right? Can you hear me? All right. How about this? Is this better? I'll try and keep myself disciplined to the microphone as far as I can. Uh, Vincent's book is, is full of fascinating puzzles about identity. And I should say to start with, I've been enjoying discussing things with Vincent for an improbably long time. I think we first started in 1968. Yes. <laughs> when we met in Montreal. And we've been going on, on and off, not, not continuously, but on and off ever since. So this is t taking up 
another of the various threads of the identity of our uh, discussions between us. And it's true that in every succeeding generation, certain terms seem to achieve a peculiarly wide and diverse currency, usable, uh, as one might say, in all sorts of different contexts, and, ex and acceptable as if their meanings were clear and determinate enough to bear the weight of significant analysis and argument, but which, under closer examination, turn out to be extraordinarily hard to pin down, uh, if not indeed outright confused. In the philosophical writings of the 18th century, for example, the word idea functioned as one such term. And I seem to remember Gilbert Ryle distinguishing between no less than six different senses in which he found it to have been used by Locke, by Locke alone. And more recently, uh, uh, the term logic seemed to play something of the same sort of role in a great deal of the so-called analytic philosophy of roughly the middle of the last century. Informal logic, formal logic, the logic of this or that, and somehow the notion of logic floated, if you like, the, well, the concept of logic floated between the various uses of the term. And today the term identity does seem to have taken on something of the same multi-conceptual or general purpose role in much of the writings, not only of philosophers, but in those of psychologists, sociologists, political theorists, ideologists, and indeed, I think significantly enough, in a great deal of the public discourse or discourses as well. I seem to remember, I tried to test this out with Vincent, but I believe that one of the main publications of the National Front in France, at least up to fairly recently, was simply called Identité, which clearly had a political uh, significance. So the title of this recent and I think very helpful book, The, the Embarrassments of Identity, or The Puzzlements as it's going to be translated, is singularly appropriate, for there are all sorts of puzzles bound up in or with our uses of this ubiquitous term. And I can't hope to chase down all of even the most notable of these often interconnected puzzles. So I will try to focus on just two of them, which I, have in, which I find particularly intriguing. And the first of these <coughs> concerns a puzzle which is both an intellectual puzzle, I think, and for many people a, 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 a life puzzle. That's to say, the question of whether the very facts of one's identity as the particular individual that one might be held or might be or might be held to be, can these facts determine some of the principal obligations or duties to which one may be bound or be held by others to be bound? That's to say, the responsibilities which are tied to the roles which they are held to occupy just by virtue of whom they are or are held to be. Responsibilities which one may choose not to fulfill but whose reality one cannot in all truth deny. So that if one chooses not to fulfill them, one has a certain sense of, uh, of residual guilt because one hasn't uh, fulfilled what, on one view of the matter, may be held to be one's responsibilities. And throughout Vincent's book, he takes it to be evident that the so-called modern view of the human being's place in the world is an essentially individualist one, and that this view has deep conceptual underpinnings. And one prime, prime example of such an underpinning would indeed be the alleged logical impossibility of deriving value judgments from any set of strictly non-evaluative propositions, be they factual or what used to be called analytic. 
If what is sometimes referred to as Hume's law, those of you who know about uh, Hume's law, is often very loosely expressed as the impossibility of deriving an ought from an is, uh, if this has indeed the status of a rule of logic, then it does certainly have these strictly individualist implications. It would mean that however many and whatever the facts with which I may be confronted, the recognition as being among the indisputable facts of my identity as the particular individual among all others that I can be uh, seen to be or identified as being, and the facts of the situation which I occupy thereby, none of these facts, qua facts, could ever logically constrain me in deciding what I ought to do, that's to say, in deciding what my responsibilities might be. My guiding values would, of rational necessity, be mine to determine alone. And if I allowed others to choose them for me, that too would be my least tacit decision and my responsibility, if only by default. I, one might decide that one accepts the values of the central committee of one's party or, or the um, pronouncements of one's church, but that's one's decision on this view. And the same, of course, would go for anybody and everybody else, not only my, my, my own um, freedom. Uh, there was a famous title of a book, The Fear of Freedom, which some of you may remember, where one realizes that one is logically committed to deciding the values of one's own life. And the world whose conceptual structure includes the principle of no ought from an is, is one of ultimately inalienable individual responsibility. And this is a fundamentally liberal and Protestant world. Seen from this point of view, my identity is not so much, or at any rate not only, a matter of how I am to be individuated, but very fundamentally, and as Charles Taylor put it in his book, Sources of the Self, I quote, the horizon within which I am capable of making a stand. Rather reminiscent of the famous saying by Martin Luther. Well, the unsurprising fact is, however, that the realms of fact and value are not so easily and clearly distinguishable or capable of being held so incontrovertibly apart as all that. And it may well be broadly safer to speak not of just of the modern view of the world as being an essentially individualist one as the modern Western view of the world. At any rate, one of the main challenges presented to this modern individualistic world view by concepts and conceptions of identity lies in the way in which they can still seem for many people to constitute an undeniable bridge between certain statements of indisputable fact on the one hand and the recognition of certain obligatory commitments and responsibilities on the other. Vincent argues in his book, surely quite rightly, that any view that individuals may have or be able to express of themselves, or indeed of others, depends on them being able to individuate themselves. That is to say, to identify themselves in what he calls the elementary sense of being able to pick themselves out from all others as the particular language using human beings that they are. And that this is necessary, necessary to be able to situate themselves in and through space and, crucially, ongoing time. Thus, one's basic individuating identity in the sense of one's ID may be seen as being determined by such facts as, for example, that having been born male or female in a given sibling's position in a family that is recognized, say, by long-established community tradition 
as occupying a certain role position within the community, within the, one, the community into which one is born. And so these individual identifying facts may be understood by many members, both of the family in question and of the whole community, not only as serving to identify the girl or boy, man or woman, as the particular individual among all others that he or she may be, but as determining for that individual a certain range of responsibilities, perhaps indeed privileges, that he or she may not be prepared to meet, but whose basis in the reality of their identity cannot in all good faith be denied. So is it ultimately up to me to determine just what my responsibilities to others may be? My responsibilities to my family and more generally to the group or groups to which I or my family may belong? Or might they be determined rather by my very identity and the way in which it is bound up with the role that I thus happen to have been born to? It cannot, of course, be up to me to decide whether or not the role of a doctor, for instance, should or should not be understood as carrying with it a responsibility for the health of his or her patients. So insofar as I may be properly identified as a doctor, I, I'm not, of course, properly identified as a doctor, but if I was, I should naturally be subject to judgment in the light of how I may have sought to fulfill that responsibility. But it remains, of course, the case that if I am a doctor, it will be because I have chosen to enter into that role, and I could, in principle at least, always choose to vacate it, even if this is a principle that could need some careful spelling out. It would hardly be admitted as an acceptable possibility, for instance, that I might choose to vacate my role as a doctor just for the time that might be needed for me to deal with a prospective patient in some wholly unprofessionally, unprofessionally medical manner, and then resume the role. And even within so-called modern individualist societies, there are plenty of other institutionally defined and obligation-carrying roles from which, once entry has been granted, exit will only be recognised under certain institutionally determined conditions. Marriage, as understood by certain religious communities, is only one of the most notable of these. Although it may be said that in principle, at least within modern Western societies, no one is constrained to enter into marriage and so take upon themselves whatever may be judged to be its responsibilities. But what if family and or community tradition and an influential number of family and or community members do take it to be beyond rational dispute that the simple facts of my or your identity as occupying a given place within our family or community carries with it an inescapable number of both positive and negative role-linked responsibilities? of whether or not to marry, for instance, and if so, to whom or whom not, or what sort of life to lead and of what sort to avoid. We may rebel against what we perceive as unreasonable and unacceptable constraints, but are there any arguments by which we might demonstrate to those who would so constrain us our rationally indisputable right, even indeed responsibility, as morally autonomous persons, to determine for ourselves the values by which to live and the obligations to which we should commit ourselves. The question is one of how our ways of conceptualizing the relations between what we may call facts as contrasted, as contrasted with values, value judgments or statements of fact, uh, how these may be brought into discursive relations with the conceptual frameworks of those who are unable to see any such clear distinction, which is the same as asking how different ways of conceiving the world and our places in it and its ongoing structures may be brought into relation with each other. And more specifically, 
the question of whether a person's identity is occupying his or her own particular or individual place among those of all others of his or her family or community should or should not be understood as carrying with it, along with the bare individuating facts, a basis for rationally indisputable judgments as to what that person should or should not do in the ordering of his or her life. And I guess that these are the sorts of questions and problems of communication, often with people of, the, of, a, of an elder generation, but not always, by any means. Sometimes people of the younger generation who wish to cling on to certain traditional values. And these are problems which many, many of us may well have faced at one time or another. Of how, how do you reach some kind of understanding with people who think that it is obvious that you ought to behave in certain ways given your role identity and one's own sense as an, uh, as an autonomous individual person that it is up to oneself to decide what one's role in life and one's responsibilities should be. Well, I've left myself with very little time for my other main area of empuzzlement, which has characteristically enough, though I won't be able to explore this, certain quite close overlaps with the, and entanglements with my first one. But this is the puzzle of what to make of, one, of what Vincent calls in the final chapter of his book, which he calls uh, La Pluralité des Appartenances, or what we might call the problem of belongings, uh, or the plurality of belongings, or multiple identities. One important way in which people may, as one says, identify themselves or be identified by others <coughs> is, as he pointed out, by reference to their voluntary or involuntary membership of, or their belonging to, certain narrower or wider groups. It's, think of the term belonging. It's quite interesting how it has a, a, a double sense. Is that I'm a member of, but I, I'm, I belong to them in the way I'm, I, I'm part of their, what they possess what constitutes them as a group. And this membership is seen or felt by, by some to be of a special or, as is sometimes said, essential significance to them. And, in so, and as such, it may be characterized as forming part of their very identity. Well, people may, of course, belong to a whole variety of different groups of great or even essential significance to them. And such groups may stand in a number of different relations to each other. Vincent argues in the book that the main problem arising from the possession of such multiple identities derives not so much from the fact of their plurality as from what he calls the manner of their composition, and most notably from the orders of precedence to, to be given to the demands that each may put among its upon its members in cases of conflict. Vincent contends, and I quote, uh, that I, this is my translation, not the one necessarily which is going to appear uh, next year. Uh, quote, it is natural, he says, that the wider containing group, le, le groupe en global, should claim primacy over the group contained within it. We recognize the principle of the superiority of a good that is more universal over one which is more particular, unquote. And he immediately goes on to say that this principle, I quote again, this principle lies at the foundation of republican universalism in the French sense of the word. Particular interests have to give way in face of the common interest on pain of having to acknowledge themselves as being cooperative or feudal, unquote. Well, there is, it seems to me, a problem with the suggestion that something, a good, an interest, or a claim, can be thought of as being more or less universal and that the relative priorities of potentially conflicting claims or interests can be ordered in this way. 
or that a so-called universal republic could take the form of a politically particular state. More or less general, one is, seems to me all right, but more or less universal, I'm not so sure. In principle, at any rate, any particular individual, whatever his or her particularizing identity or origin as such, and whatever his or her um, earlier uh, identifications may be, may become, say, British or French. But this cannot be universally true of all and everyone. For a state, among other states, remains always a particular politically limited collectivity, and however broad its frontiers, However numerous the population of its citizens, the state must have certain boundaries and its citizenship certain limits. A given religious group may claim possession of a truth that should, according to its own doctrine, command universal recognition, while its members who do so recognize it remain only a relatively tiny minority among the far greater numerical generality of their fellow citizens with whom they may share a common national identity. In such a case, uh, perhaps equally strongly felt religious and national identities may only too well enter into conflict with each other. And I would, of course, like to think that there might be a philosophical or conceptual way to resolve all such conflicts, but this would, at the very least, involve the telling of a far longer and better story than any that I might hope to be able to provide you now, or, I fear, at any other likely time. Thank you very much to both Vincent and to Alan. Um, perhaps I can take Chair's privilege and ask a question that you might be able to develop into a bit of a dialogue. Um, forgive me if I'm being slightly reductive here, but when I listened to both of you speaking, when you were speaking, Alan, I got a real sense of the kind of obligations of identity, a kind of um, the weight of the pressures that come from, from the outside. Whereas when you were speaking, Vincent, you located identity as a way of conceptualising one's social, one's social interactions within an individualistic, broadly individualistic framework. And in a sense, you, you, you framed identity as a kind of opportunity, as an opportunity of rethinking one's social obligations. And I, I couldn't help thinking that yours is a more optimistic view than Alan's. <laughs> No, no, optimistic, maybe. No, 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 it's not a matter of uh, being optimistic. It, it's a matter of explaining something which should strike us as uh, paradoxical, that the very uh, choice of this word identity for uh, what, we, what people uh, want to say when they use it. Certainly, the, the, the success of the, of the world comes from the fact that uh, uh, everybody has a paradigm in, in mind, which is self-presentation. So somehow, wh when I introduce myself to, to somebody or to an audience, then I identify myself. Then I identify myself in the logical sense. I am this very person. But at the same time, of course, I, uh, I bring in, into picture uh, various elements of my life and my personality, and this is what we call uh, now identity. But these uh, uh, elements are not as such uh, 
identifying me. Uh, since there are, uh, let, let's say, social, uh, social uh, roles as in uh, government. Well, let's say I am a parent, but a lot of you are also parents, so there is nothing special. Uh, it's not identifying uh, with respect to my person. And this is why I think it's important to, to keep in mind the fact of individuation, because the very problem of, uh, so I come back to the second uh, puzzle Alan has uh, mentioned, the, the puzzle of the plurality of uh, belongings. The, the, where is the problem of uh, two groups uh, making uh, conflicting demands on me? Well, of course, there is uh, the, the fact that I, I could uh, just uh, ignore these demands, but in that case, there would be no problem for me. There is a problem for me when I uh, acknowledge the importance of these demands and I cannot uh, get rid of them simply by saying, uh, I am free, uh, let me uh, have uh, my own life. No, 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 no. The problem of identity begins when I want to uh, be a good member of uh, these two groups. But I have just one body to offer, and in order to be, uh, to, be to satisfy everybody, I would have to be at this place doing something, and, and at another place, maybe doing the contrary. And this is not possible. This is why there is a problem of identity. And such a fact is masked, is, uh, is uh, blurred by the, the language of a plural identity. The plurality of identity is the problem, it's not the solution. And of course, this problem is uh, real. We, we meet this problem from time to time. Uh, now, the uh, The, the, the problem we, we meet is, do we have a principle of composition for um, giving answers which would be uh, decent and moral and satisfactory in a situation where one group, uh, let's say my family wants something, and another group, let's say my profession wants something, and I cannot please everybody. The principle which is uh, more, more most of the time uh, advanced, put forward at that point, is uh, universalism. And I mention it in the book, but uh, I, I point out in, 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 uh, in the same chapter that this could not be the, uh, the whole answer. Because if you lay down as a principle that uh, we just look at this group and which one is uh, larger, which one is more extended, then the, the more globally your group is, the uh, more important the, the claim, the, the demands it uh, makes on you are. In that case, you, uh, we, we, we end up denying the reality of diversity because the smaller groups will never have a chance to... Uh, to, to get their members doing something for, for them. If, let, let's say, if, if there is a conflict between my uh, village and uh, the, the province or the province and the country, then the smaller group will always lose in this uh, competition. So the principle of composition we need has to recognize that uh, sometimes the more universalistic trumps the other demand, but it has sometimes to recognize that uh, the, um, the other demand is also legitimate. Uh, now, 
uh, how to, this is a matter of uh, finding uh, a context for the demands. And how do we do that? Um, so let, let, let's, I don't remember your examples, but um, everybody has uh, plenty of examples in mind with people claiming that their minority identity has to be recognized within a larger society. Then, where is the principle of composition? I would say the principle of composition is in the very prominent we. You have to look at the first person plural we. Because there are two ways that this is what linguists uh, teach us. Uh, there are uh, two ways of using we. One way is we in the sense of me and you to whom I am now speaking. That's the inclusive we. So we, so I, I say we and I intend that we to cover me and you. Of course, I can fail to build that we. It's, it's, it's enough that uh, some of the people say, uh, what is that? I'm not part of your we, and then I have failed. But if uh, the audience agrees, then this is the inclusive we. And the exclusive we uh, is uh, to be uh, composed with me and them speaking to you. And you are excluded or included. This is the uh, distinction. This distinction means that we is a dialogical term. It's not a term one can use just uh, uh, alone. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of addressing people and telling something to people. And what I, uh, I tell people is that we together want something, let's say, or I tell you that we, meaning me and other people, want to tell you what we want from you, let's say. So these are the two, two things. And the question to raise when uh, we, we uh, confront a, a situation with conflicting identities and people making uh, minority uh, uh, claims for recognition and uh, legitimation uh, is what is your we? Are, we? are you speaking to us with us included in your we? Or are you speaking in the name of the minority to people not included in in your group. In the first case, we, we, we have the situation of uh, republicanism as uh, understood in uh, France, uh, which is to say we are all uh, part of the same uh, community. So you, you are speaking to your uh, uh, fellow citizens in that case, to, to the other members of the same group. And of course, the, the, the only demands we can make at this level are demands of equality or things like that, since we are in the same boat. And in the other case, you are not, you are not, uh, in the case where the we is me and them asking you to recognize something or to do something for us or to, to uh, acknowledge uh, our claim, in that case, we are no longer speaking to our fellow citizens, we are speaking to another group. And we have at that point to look at groups speaking to groups within uh, a global earth. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a contextualization of identity. And I, I give a, the, the, maybe an, an, there is a nice example which uh, 
can clarify what I'm uh, saying right now by the uh, anthropologist uh, Evans Pritchard. And he tries to explain how it is uh, in Africa, very complex uh, organization. But it, look, he's speaking uh, as a British anthropologist and says, if I am in, uh, outside the country, I am British because I'm speaking to non-British people. But back in England, I am, uh, I don't remember where he comes from. Well, he's from somewhere. And then back in, uh, in, uh, in my village, I am from this street. And, and the other groups are the other streets. So it's a matter of context, how to define uh, the minorities and the global societies. This is a way um, we, we have a, a composition of identities which, in, in which there is not just one demand which will always be uh, legitimate and the other uh, delegitimate just because they are particularized. Yeah, I, I, let me just make just one very quick point actually about da Daniel's suggestion that uh, I was being less optimistic. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's a matter of optimism. It depends where you situate yourself. Obviously, from the point of view of the individual who sees themselves as being frustrated by those who don't see that individuals have a kind of freedom to determine their own values in the face of the facts of their own roles, then Vincent's individualist position is more optimistic it's, it, because it suggests that, after all, the individual can break free, I mean, rationally break free, and is not going to have to admit that he's somehow wrong in not meeting his or her responsibilities. But from the other point of view, from those people who believe that if you're born the eldest son of a particular family or the daughter of a family where you really shouldn't marry somebody from a different caste or a different religion. For people who believe that, it's not particularly optimistic to suppose that, uh, after all, this individual can decide their own responsibility. <laughs> so I think that you would be you were taking the side of the, the individual who wants to break free. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd like to pick up on the use of the word we. Would you like to just wait a second until oh, the microphone Thank you. Thank you. Is that okay? Yes. Right. Uh, yes, because I think you tend to allude to we, Vincent, in the sense that uh, what about we believe? That seems to me that's a collection of subjective beliefs, uh, such as, or desires, it's desires. <coughs> Whereas we are solicitors is third person impersonal. So both of those are part of we. Um, could I, I, I just say, by the way, thank you. Uh, that also picks up uh, Alan's distinction between the fact and commitment. Because of, uh, I could say, for example, um, well, I think you're absolutely right about that. But as a solicitor, I have to advise you. But you're completely wrong. So that seems to me that I would have a third person commitment which is filtered something like through my subjectivity. Um, could I, I just uh, go to what I wanted to ask in the first place <laughs> of Vincent, which was about identity politics in the US, because you raised this question of changing identity, and we've been subjected here to quite a lot of this in recent years, and particularly questionnaires such as, do you consider yourself to be... Um, heterosexual or Christian. Now, where does that go? It's not really one thing or the other, is it? It seems to be 
if it's an empirical question, it ought to be, are you a Christian? And so on. And do you consider yourself to be transgender is interesting. But you know, this US influence is not really useful. <laughs> Could you comment on that in the light of your Chicago experience? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I have great trouble to consider questions such as do you consider yourself this or that questions about my identity so you, you could say that, that back to the optimistic uh, you, you could say that uh, my undertaking has been to, 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 to try to find an intelligible use for identity because the, the term is there to stay. We, we, we are not going to, to get rid of it. As some, some writers have said, there is nothing to do with that. It's too, too uh, confused. Let's avoid the term, but it's there. So I would say the, the use of the term is um, intelligible if you can uh, start with the logical sense and then move to the present sense, social sense. But of course, uh, there is no way I can start with the logical sense and find a meaning to my identity is to be uh, uh, what, a male, for instance. Or where is my identity in that in that uh, case? Because half of the human species is uh, in, in the same case, so it, it's not about me and me alone. It, it does not identify me. Um, of course, we can uh, try to, to explain how it seems obvious that it's part of my identity by saying that uh, uh, do you consider being of such a, a being a male, let's say, uh, something which cannot change because if it was changed, then there would not be, you would, not, you would no longer be there, it would be another person. Then we are back to a logical uh, sense because there would be me, and uh, without uh, an attribute, then it's no longer me, it's another person. So in that sense, we have uh, a justification. But of course, uh, the, the, the American way, I don't know if that's what you have in mind, but there is an American way if, with the idea that I can change my identity, but it's always me. So they want have it, to have it both ways. I, I am always uh, there, there is no doubt about that, but I can uh, play, and this is the Goffmanian uh, meaning which uh, I condemn. I think that are, uh, this is something one should avoid. Uh, identity is not just uh, a, um, not a social role I play, because the social role, precisely, is not especially mine, it's a role which is uh, um, socially defined and uh, um, um, the, the only uh, 
take I have on the rule is to play it uh, seriously with uh, a lot of uh, concern or with irony. Uh, now, I, I, I would like to make a, a, another point which goes uh, in the same direction uh, um, about individualism. It's not uh, just by chance that uh, the, the, the word uh, identity was born in, uh, in America because uh, some, somewhere Erickson uh, wrote at the time of Freud in Vienna there was no problem of identity because in Vienna these people knew perfectly what, who they were and what they had to do. They, were, they had trouble fulfilling their uh, functions and uh, being, uh, so they, they got a lot of uh, neurosis and uh, conflicts, but no problem of identity. Whereas identity is there, identity crisis is there where Americanization takes place. It's, it's a process of, uh, so it's, it's very much part of uh, the rise of individualism. Now, what do I mean by individualism? I don't uh, uh, take the, the word in a pejorative sense as a meaning uh, some kind of uh, uh, self-serving uh, mentality. No, no, no. Individualism is a value. It's, it's uh, basically, it's, uh, the, it's the, the very uh, principle of uh, the Western civilization. It's uh, the rights of man and everything is individualist. So it's very positive. But uh, at the same time, one has to uh, admit that uh, we are not born individualist. And uh, I would say there are no individualist, individualistic families. A family cannot be individualist. That's impossible. That, uh, that's a contradiction. So, uh, our uh, commitment to uh, the value of uh, autonomy, freedom, uh, uh, the human rights does not mean that it's easy for us to be individualists. And our, our, the problem of identity is there. We, we have to admit that we are born social beings, like everybody uh, in uh, human history, but we claim to be able to free ourselves, to emancipate ourselves from our social condition and to make these radical choices that uh, Alan mentioned, such as my family wants this, but I am the one uh, who will decide whether to follow what they say or uh, to uh, go my own way. Uh, it's a hard uh, work on oneself to become individualist, and I would say nobody is uh, uh, completely uh, uh, individualist. That's, that's the commitment is there, but in, in the real life, uh, things are different, and this is where, I would say, the term identity makes sense, because it's completely on the side of uh, individualism, but without uh, leaving our uh, culture, we can somehow uh, recover some parts of uh, our uh, social uh, uh, life. And that's why the term is there to stay, in, in my view. Alan, do you want to respond? comment was made about facts and values as though British values are somehow, somehow unique to Britain but I'm sure French values are pretty well identical with British values both countries 
put great value on justice, for example. And it seems to me that value is not a determinant of character. It, it does not determine identity. That what determines identity is not value, but strength. That, that, for example, the British are famous for secrecy. That's Everybody knows that's how we won the war, or how the Allies won the war, the, the Second World War. The, the, the Italians are famous for, for singing. The French are famous for cookery. These are strengths. They're not values. And it seems to me that it's, it's strength that determines identity, not value. Well, it seems to me that uh, there are all sorts of important things that, that may be said truly about one group of people or another, or one individual or another, which don't necessarily uh, uh, tie in with the notion of identity. I mean, it, it, let's suppose it is true that the French are all much better cooks than the English. I, I'm not sure whether it is true, but let's suppose that this is true. <laughs> this doesn't seem to me, uh, unless they somehow claim that this is a part of what it is to be French, we're not yet talking about identity, we're talking about something which is true, happily true, about French cuisine. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, two, two, two remarks. Collective identity is not just a national identity. Any group, any real group, if it is a group with a history, can claim an identity. Uh, I, I read on the on the web page of a university, I don't remember which American university, our university is very proud of our Jesuit identity. So the university has an identity, or at least it says so. Uh, uh, now, uh, about what, what you, you said, in some of uh, its uh, users, the word identity is uh, a successor of a national character. But there is an um, ambiguity in uh, the, the notion of uh, national character, which is that the notion of character is a, belongs to the psychology of the individual. And it's not clear that speaking of national character allows us to say something about a country. Uh, the idea that some people are better cooks and other... Does not, we are not speaking here of, uh, we, we are here uh, uh, mentioning some uh, stereotypes about people. And some, uh, ev every, every country has a lot of stereotypes about the uh, neighbors. The, the Germans are serious, they work hard, the, 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 so, so and so. But is this something about the history and the, the, so the, the, the very identity of a group? Or is it a, a psychological remark about what is often the case with people from this country. Um, it's not clear that uh, uh, what we say about uh, the behavior of uh, a member of uh, one group is a description of the group. So, uh, for, uh, as to my uh, own uh, use of the term collective identity, I want the term collective identity to be on 
to be sociological, to, 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 to say something about the groups, about the human groups, not about the psychology which we attribute according to uh, um, our experience or uh, our prejudices to people of the group. And this is a distinction which is not uh, always uh, made in the literature. When you were talking about the relationship between identity and role, I thought that was interesting because um, I think role is one of these um, things that uh, display a lot of re reification. You know, the fact that we think of roles as a noun rather than a verb, we think of it in terms of you're playing a role, you are acting in, you have a role rather than there are certain things you do and certain ways you relate with others. And it's interesting that there seems to be a psychological motivation towards that reification because you know, children, even at young ages, playing cops and robbers or, or, or Indians or whatever, cowboys and Indians. So it seems the question of identity is, is very related to the question of why there are psychological needs to have roles as nouns rather than roles as verbs and roles as adjectives and, and adverbs. And so it seems to me that one of the problems with why identity is such a slippery concept is that it is an answer to specific psychological needs. And so the question is, how, what is it that satisfies these particular psychological needs? That is what identity is. And so it becomes as slippery as it, or as um, multifaceted as the various ways that those particular needs can be satisfied. You know, so for instance, the question about dynamic versus transient versus permanent, you know, you have, um, that's not a problem at all. I um, you could have the sense that I have a permanent identity, but I could change tomorrow. You know, because my sense of this permanent identity, whether it changes or not, is what is satisfying my need at that particular point in time. Well, there are, there are all sorts of complicated issues bound up in that, I'm, I think. I mean, one of the things which um, has always struck me is the kind of tension that can be between the way in which people identify themselves and the ways in which they may be identified by others. By identified, I mean actually seen as... Uh, and in a particular, well, you could say role, if you like, or in a particular, in a particular place in a in a whole spectrum of how people should may be. Um, I, I could quote various examples of this, but let me just um, make an, a, another point. It seems to me that the. Most of the questions which uh, now somehow have collected themselves together under the diverse uses of the term identity can be raised, asked, and to some extent tackled without the use of the term identity at all. After all, in many languages, up to quite, even our own perhaps, up to re relatively recently, we didn't have a use of the term in this across-the-board sort of way. I mean, I, I remember uh, when I was long ago um, doing my um, army service, uh, actually in, in Singapore, people in the markets would ask me what nowadays you might be called questions of identity, but what they were asking was, where do you come from, are you married, how old are you, how many children have you got? They were trying to place me on a map of some sort. And to place people on a map is to individuate them in a certain kind of way, is to locate them in a recognizable way. And these can well be thought of as questions of identity. The, the root notion of identity, I suppose, is a notion of sameness. Uh, is the butterfly the same what as the caterpillar from which it somehow emerged? 
there's a question of sameness through time and, and continuity. Same problems arise for groups. Is this the party which I joined 50 years ago? It, well, um, old Labour, Blairites, they, they ask these questions of identity of the Labour Party, for example. And the notion of identity also comes, of sameness, comes in the use of the terms to identify with. I identify myself with a given group rather than some other group, or I identify myself with a given set of values. And what I identify with myself with becomes my identity. All these ways in which the term slips about with somehow a notion of sameness, continuity, often as Vinso emphasizes, I think, uh, absolutely essential importance in this book, identity through time, or you sometimes say through history. Uh, so questions of sameness, when are you dealing with the same, what, whatever it may be, and how essential is it to your recognition as being the same, that it should be of one character or another, all these different issues somehow or other co get uh, collected rather untidily under what now come to be known as questions of identity, which makes it so messy and which makes it, if I can repeat myself, makes it, I think, such a welcome book that we get this disentanglement of so many of these issues. Gentlemen, uh, in the middle here, with the red top. Perhaps given that we haven't much time, we can take two questions and then... The guy at the back has been yeah. from the beginning. Uh, hi, I was just wondering whether you could comment on sort of two dimensions that sort of came to mind when I was listening. One is sort of I can think about identity in a liberal tradition, and this is the kind of individualistic notion of identity and all that. But I was sort of thinking what I was missing was a totalitarian notion of identity, a totalizing notion of identity. So I found that an interesting kind of way of just kind of like organizing, thinking around identities, totalizing versus individualizing identities. That's the one, maybe have some thoughts on that. And the other one is, is which didn't come up, is, has become really big with big data and all that stuff and profiling and terrorism and all that, identities and so forth. And so the difference between human identities and machine identities. So like these two dimensions, totalizing versus individualizing, machine versus human, maybe there's something... Can we just take the other question at the same time? Yeah. Gentleman in the blue. Um, yeah, I'm having my own kind of uh, personal identity crisis here because I have a question but I don't really know what it means. So if I'm thinking about species identity, animality if you like, uh, and if that's merely something like a support for what you're talking about, or it has a different kind of uh, place in that scheme. Okay, to, to take the two questions uh, together, the, the, the main conceptual problem I have found with the term identity is the fact that when we made judgments of identity before, before, before Ericsson, let's say, before the, the term emerged with a new sense. It was just a matter of uh, knowing whether there was two things or just one. That was the question of identity. Now, the questions that, that are raised and other questions too, use the term in such a way that the, the substantive identity needs a complementation by a adjective, such you, you said machine identity. Uh, um, 
we have to qualify the identity. And the very fact that uh, we qualify the identity, what, what is your sex identity, what is uh, your sexual identity, what is your professional identity, the very fact that we use the substantive with an adjective seems to deprive the substantive from any sense of identification. <coughs> Unless you introduce to identify with. Uh, but let, uh, I want to let you know that to identify with, that uh, works very well in English, but I would not know how to translate it in French. Because saying in French that I, I identify with a value would be ridiculous. It, 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 it would not work. So this is a peculiarity of the very useful one. Of course, we could say the same thing with other words, but not with the concept of an entity. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and uh, even uh, among uh, psychoanalysts, the identification uh, uh, in Freud are not the English sense of identifying with one's country, one, or with a value, or with anything. It's, it's something completely different. So, the term is a slippery. There seems to be a tendency to think of identity as identification, as am I the same over time. And I can see in terms of a tradition of kind of liberal or even the kind of a French Republican tradition, that becomes a kind of significant way of thinking. But if you think about the way that the notion of identity or the language of identity has kind of been introduced from the late 60s into the early 70s, the notion, of, and you brought it up, of your gender identity isn't simply a question, do I belong to this group or do I belong to that group? It's not just a question of, identification, it's a question of, have I really reflected upon or thought about the way in which my identity is tied up, say my identity as a man, is tied up with my masculinity, with a particular culture, with a particular uh, understanding of relationships of authority, of particular notions of privilege. That conception of identity is much harder to reach through the kind of idea of, am I the same? It might be that I was only 25 before I thought about what it means to be a man. I, didn't, I never thought about it. I looked at the mirror and I thought, I'm a human being like everyone else. I had absolutely no idea about my gender identity or that I had a gendered identity in terms of masculinity. And most philosophy didn't help me think about it. It was only the challenging of feminist philosophy that basically made you think, no, my identity isn't simply a matter of do I fit into this box or that box? Am I still the same? And we began to think about identity in terms of belonging, a shared history, a, a shared history that I often was completely unaware of. So it's that challenge, that conception of identity which has proved 
challenging. It's where we have kind of racialized identity, gendered identity, sexual identity, which is not a question of identification. Do I belong to this category or that category? It's a matter of coming to recognize myself in a particular kind of history with a particular kind of culture through particular notions of difference. And that notion of identity as belonging or identifying with is very difficult to reach if we're simply thinking about whether I'm the same as. I, I think I would agree with the conclusion. That, that's what I, I tried to, to advance in saying that uh, the world is successful because it allows people to remain, uh, to, to keep their individualistic uh, ideals because that, that, that's their culture. We, we are not going to, to get rid of that but to um, accommodate um, these ideas with the fact that uh, there are all these differences and uh, we, we, we confront uh, challenges. So I would agree with the conclusion. But, but the individualism is challenged. I'm no longer an individual in the same way because I now understand myself in relationship to my masculinity in a way that is completely... You're like the major party of the ship, aren't you? I mean... <laughs> well, in some ways, yeah, I've shifted. No, 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 yeah, I, I would not agree with that. No, no, because the, the, the relation between... Uh, same with me. The, my relation with my masculinity, that's completely individualistic because... Why? Because if we want to speak of groups, if we want to speak of uh, social beings, we have to refer to real groups and... Uh, but your gender is a group. It's not the, the Perhaps you could let Vincent respond. No, no, no. Uh, so, gender identity, I don't understand what it is. You don't understand? <laughs> no. Gender, or maybe yes. I, why identity? Why identity? The, the, so, let, let me. When I speak of identification, it's not I am the same, am I the same uh, over time? That's not enough. It's, I'm, you have to do the same what. If you don't uh, introduce uh, a what, the question is empty. Of course, I'm not the same. I, I'm always changing. And uh, who is changing me? So uh, there, there has to be uh, uh, an identity. I am the same human being, but I, 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 I'm no longer a boy. I'm no longer a young man. I'm no longer. Okay, so the same what. That's the rule. Gender, um, and that, that's just one example you, you give, but I'm sure you had other challenges. All these are part of a question we ask about ourselves, but when it comes to belonging, it has to be belong, belonging not to a taxonomic uh, uh, class, to, to a pure uh, logical class, such as uh, are you on this side, or are you male or female? It has to be uh, belonging to a group, a real group with a history of its own, a history which is not, um, which is which began before me and which will go on after my uh, disparition. That's uh, so we need real groups, and uh, the, 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 there is not a group of men, a group of women. The, the, there might be in a society. Um, a division between uh, the women will go this way, the men will go this way. Then we have a real group. Otherwise, it's just a logical classification. And uh, this is not uh, 
So I, I would say you have to, to make one step further in order to reach the, the, what you were mentioning, which is the social group. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you can continue the discussion afterwards. I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'd like you to join me in thanking our speakers again.